Uh, I'm still Ken Gallagher, member here at FBC. I have a husband, Jim, three grown-up children, and one and a very little bit grandchildren, which is really exciting for us as a family. And on a family ski trip a few years ago, the boys went off-piste. They failed to turn up at the meeting spot, so us girls were left waiting at the bottom of the ski run. The longer we waited, the colder we got. So the text that I sent the boys might just have had a cross tone, stop messing us around. We were fuming. It also turned out we were penniless. We couldn't even buy hot drinks. We hadn't any money with us. So the text got angrier and angrier because we felt abandoned and our day was ruined. Why couldn't they behave like us girls? Ski safely on the piste and meet on time. Our anger finally turned to concern when we realized just how lost they were. And it was a few hours before I could go and rescue the boys who ended up in another town altogether. Fortunately, I had calmed down by then. Doing life with people who are really nothing like us is difficult because we're all different. In our family, our three kids have different ways of doing life. One's more creative, another independent, another always active. And it's made parenting fun. A son-in-law brought a more thoughtful, less impulsive dim dimension to our family. My husband, Jim, is decisive and visionary, and I'm a bit more calm and task-oriented. So we're still trying to understand how to do life better together, even after 37 years. And then there's the people I've worked alongside over the years in the teams here at FBC and elsewhere. They've become very precious to me. But I don't always understand where the people are coming from because they don't always do things the way I would. We're unique, and that diversity is wonderful. It's the way God created us. But it does create challenges in our marriages, in our family, in the workplace. So that's why we're doing a series called Better Together, doing life well with people who are nothing like you. Last week, Chris kicked off the series talking about the four different temperaments. That might have been an eye-opener for you if you were here. He challenged us to understand ourselves, our own strengths and weaknesses, and to appreciate other people's characteristics so that we can live and work together well and build each other up. So if you missed it, you can head to fbcnext.com and click on Catch Up. Today, we're thinking about those times when we expect people to think, act, and speak in a particular way, but they don't. And that creates tension. How do you handle those moments? The moments when there's a gap between what I hope for and what I experience what actually happens. And that is going to happen in any relationship with our partner, our friend, a family member, a colleague. People will inevitably fall short of our expectations. So what do we do with that gap between our expectations and our experience? When you value being on time, but they always turn up late. When your partner is late home from work, again, when your particular shirt isn't ironed and ready to go. When your friend never takes you up on your impulsive last-minute invitations. When your kids' church team member hasn't done their prep before they arrive. 
or when your kid's church team member is so worried about the details and the prep, they forget to be loving and welcoming to the kids. When your work colleague doesn't deliver by their deadline, or when their work is simply not up to scratch. How do you handle that gap between your expectation and your experience? It happens all the time because people are different. If you've experienced that gap recently, you'll have felt the frustration when someone lets you down, then you're in the right place this morning. Because you and I have a choice about what we fill the gap with. We can fill the gap with trust, we can give them the benefit of the doubt, or we can fill the gap with suspicion. So where do we find help on handling this gap between what we expect and what we experience? Well, 2,000 years ago, a guy called Paul, a persecutor of Christians who became one of the leaders of the first generation of Jesus followers, Paul wrote a letter to Christians in a place called Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. And that 2,000-year-old letter has some good advice for all of us, whether we're Christians or not. It seems people haven't changed much over the years. So this particular bit that we'll look at this morning probably sounds familiar. You may have heard it a hundred times. Maybe someone said it at your wedding. It's all about loving relationships. But actually, it's not just about romance. It's top tips for all healthy relationships. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not just good advice. This is how we are commanded to live. Loving those around us is not an optional extra. Jesus demonstrated a life of love by the way that he lived, by his healthy relationships, and even by the way he died. Love was at the heart of all that he did. So if we follow him, we commit to working at loving relationships. So what does Paul have to say about this gap? Love is patient. Love is kind. Even in the gap, even when someone lets me down, that doesn't come naturally, does it? Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love doesn't dishonor other people. Love isn't rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs wait a minute, you might be thinking, no record of wrongs, not even a mental list. Can't I say, you're always late or you never? Love keeps no record of wrongs. That sounds a lot like forgiveness. When someone does not live up to our expectations, when there's a gap, we feel hurt, we feel let down. If we choose to forgive them and acknowledge that hurt, but don't hold it against them, we let it go. We keep no record of wrongs. That's forgiveness. And that's one of the key aspects of loving other people. If we miss this step out, forgiving, if we don't deal with our hurts, if we don't forgive them from the heart, then the next step is pretty much impossible. So love fills the gap 
First of all, with forgiveness. Love keeps no record of wrong. So that's our starting point for living better with people who are nothing like me. Paul continues, love does not delight in evil. Aha, caught you again. Yeah, I knew they would do that. It's just what I thought. Love is not secretly pleased when someone else messes up. Love rejoices with the truth. Love means being, love means being honest and truthful. It includes being open with people around us about our expectations. Son, it would be really helpful if you let me know when you're not coming home for tea. Love doesn't store things up and then explode. Love finds a good moment and has a go at honest communication. No one finds it easy. But we can say things like, I'm feeling unsettled about the way this is working. Have you got time for a chat? Love fills the gap with honesty as well as with forgiveness. And here's the part that's a bit of a mystery. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And we're looking at that phrase, always trusts. Believes all things, always looks for the best in people. So when there's a gap between what we think someone should do and what they actually do, we're to give them the benefit of the doubt. We're to assume the best in people. Trust is one aspect of love, along with forgiveness, along with honesty. But can we really do that? Trust is a choice that we make in our marriage, in our family, in our team of volunteers or our workplace. You can give people two gifts. The first gift is trust and the second gift is being trustworthy. So we'll come back to that in a bit. So the first gift of trust. It starts with you and it starts with me. If you and I can give those around us this gift, our partner, our child, our parent, our co-worker, our friend, then trust will spread to other people. So when there's a gap, when others let me down, I can fill that gap with trust or I can fill it with suspicion. And my choice will have a huge effect on the quality of that relationship. So when someone is late, I'm just using that as an example, I have a choice. I can think, I trust you. If you're late, there must be a good reason. Or I can think, you're late because you were messing about. You tried to fit too much in again. Or you just don't care. When something's not up to scratch, I can cut you some slack and help you finish it well. I can ask how you're feeling along the way. Or I can add another item to your record of wrongs. I can maybe even point out to everyone else just how bad a job you've done. It's a choice we make between forgiveness and trust or suspicion. So if there's a lot of suspicion in a relationship or in a group, if trust is in short supply, then the relationship will suffer. The team is going to achieve little. But if there's a lot of trust, then the relationship will blossom. A team's talents and energy and creativity 
will be released. So when there's a gap, the gift of trust says, I trust you that something's up, something's wrong, and that's the reason the work didn't get done. The gift of trust says, there must be a good reason that you haven't been there for me this week. Suspicion says, you messed up again. You didn't show up again. I should have known. But love chooses trust instead of suspicion. So love fills the gap with forgiveness, with honesty, and with trust, not suspicion. And it's a choice. Elsewhere, Jesus says, treat others the way you want to be treated. What if we forgive others as often as we would like to be forgiven? What if we're honest as we would appreciate honesty in other people? How often have you said, if only they'd told me? What if we begin to trust others the way we would like to be trusted? Trust your partner the way you want them to trust you. Trust your team member to get the job done the way you want to be trusted. Trust your college friends the way you want them to trust and accept you. It starts with you and with me. <clears throat> but there are two things that make it difficult for us to trust other people. And the first one is who I am. I might be suspicious by nature. That's just how I'm wired. It may be because of the home I was raised in, my childhood experience, or my previous experience in a church or at work. I've been burnt. Maybe I've been betrayed by someone that I love. So if that's me, my knee-jerk reaction when there's a gap is, oh, here we go, I've been let down again. Instead of, I'm sure they have a good reason. So if that's me, I need to work hard at trusting, at overcoming my suspicions. And that may be some of you too. So the first thing that might make it difficult for me to trust is, is myself, who I am. The second thing is what I see. When I see a person being untrustworthy over and over, it's difficult for me to trust the next time. So if someone cancels on me five, six times, I'm not going to cut them a lot of slack. There they go again. I'm done asking you. So these two things, who I am and what I see, make it difficult for me to trust. So when it comes to this gift of trust, there are three commitments that we can make to those around us and to each other as a church family, and it could transform our relationships. The first commitment to think about, when there is a gap between what I want or expect from you and what I experience, I will fill it with trust. I make a commitment that I choose to believe the best about you. You've been working so hard recently, no wonder you missed this. I know you've been ill and you're still catching up. There must be a good reason you did it that way. This could be groundbreaking in your relationship with your kids, your friends, your colleagues. I look back on many good years of a marriage that has based on love and trust. Trust that we are committed to each other, even when we're apart. Trust that we do care 
for each other, even when our actions or our lack of actions could be taken as neglectful or uncaring. And yet, I must admit, there have been times when I abandoned trust in favor of suspicion. When my hardworking husband arrived home late after a long, stressful day to a resentful, offended wife. I expected him to give me the benefit of the doubt when a child had been sick and I hadn't had time to cook dinner and the place was a mess. But I wasn't prepared to cut him some slack or even listen to the reasons. Suspicion says they don't care about me and my needs. Trust assumes the best, gives them the benefit of the doubt. But it's asking a lot, this, isn't it? To forgive, to keep on trusting. It feels a bit like one-sided because the onus is on me. And that is where this all starts. Living well with people who are nothing like me is not going to be easy, but it will be worth it. So the second commitment that we can make to each other is when I observe someone else filling a gap with suspicion, I will come to your defense. How often do we hear someone in our own team, our family, our co-worker saying about another member, they've done it again, this is just typical. Did you notice how badly that went? There's just no excuse for that. They're always messing up. They're a no-show again. So when I hear someone filling a gap with suspicion, I am going to remind others to believe the best about you. I'm going to come to your defense. I've got your back. There must be a good excuse for what happened. They must be sick or tired or they've had a bad week. Members of a team commit to stick up for one another, to come to one another's defense, to fill those gaps with trust, not suspicion. The third commitment that we can make to each other if what I experience or see begins to erode my trust, I will come directly to you about it. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt when you've not prepared properly or when you pull out of the rota at the last minute. I'm going to trust that there's a good reason and I'm going to come to your defense. But when it happens five times, it's getting harder to trust you. It's difficult to give you the benefit of the doubt over and over. So I commit that I'm going to speak to you about it first. I'm going to be honest with you. If over and over there's a gap, I'll come directly to you. I'll try and be kind and loving as I do it. But I'm going to come to you instead of talking to other people about you. Now, there's one situation where this is not going to work. And this is if you are in an abusive relationship. It's not wise to go on trusting someone who is repeatedly abusive. And that might take various forms. Abusive behavior has to be confronted with outside help. And sometimes it will be best to leave that situation. But for most of us, talking to the person directly is the best way forward. Personally, I'm a conflict avoider. So this is really hard for me to do. I generally let it build up for far too long before erupting 
which is not the most helpful way. Or I'll mutter and complain to other people, and that's not going to build healthy relationships. So we're going to look together at handling conflicts at the end of this series. So if you want tips on how to address issues like this, be here in two weeks' time. So we've got these three simple commitments to make to each other. When there's a gap between what I want or expect from you and what I experience, I'm going to fill it with trust. When I observe someone else filling the gap with suspicion, I'm going to come to your defense. If what I experience or see begins to erode my trust, I will come directly to you about it. How different would the last year have been if everyone in your life had made those three simple commitments to each other and kept them? I wonder if this could have saved a relationship, a friendship. Would you still be in your previous church? Would you still be serving as a volunteer or still in your old job? Many marriages fail because trust is eroded. It's replaced by suspicion. And the issues are grumbled about to other people. They're not addressed honestly. Sadly, people can lose jobs over something they were never confronted about. By the time it's discussed, too much has been said behind backs and there's no trust at all. The gap is filled with suspicion. I wonder how our lives would change if we made these three commitments to each other, to those around us. Love fills the gap with forgiveness, honesty, and trust, not suspicion. So if you're committed to creating a healthy marriage, to solid friendships, to loving families, and effective relationships where you work and volunteer, you can't do it without these three aspects of love, forgiveness, honesty, and trust. So that was focusing on the gift of trust, the first gift that we can give to people. What about when I am the one who creates the gap? When there's a gap between what others expect from me and what they experience. Because if we're honest, it happens to us. We all let people down. The only human being who ever managed a life completely worthy of trust, truly authentic, with no gaps between what he said he would do and what he did. The only person who kept 100% of his commitments was Jesus Christ. The rest of us create gaps, and lots of them. You and I need to choose every day to be trustworthy. So the second gift is being trustworthy, and that means being worthy of trust. It's a big ask. We want others to love us, to trust us always. But thankfully, being trustworthy is not the same as being flawless or being perfect, either in character or in performance. You and I are still going to mess up. We're going to be late. We're going to fail to do what we said we would. We're going to say things that could be taken the wrong way. Being trustworthy means addressing the gaps that I have created by my failures or carelessness. So what am I going to do when it's me that's messed up? Well, we looked at three commitments about choosing to trust. 
Now there are three commitments about being trustworthy that we can make to each other. See what you make of these. Number one, I commit to do what I say I will do. And when I don't, I'll tell you. You won't hear it from other people. I will do my best to keep my promises. But when it's just not happening, you will hear it from me first. So it's not about being flawless. It's about being upfront. That means I'm not going to keep quiet when I miss something or mess something up. I'm not going to just wait and see, hoping that no one notices, or wait for a complaint to reach my boss or team leader before I apologize. I'm going to be upfront. I'm not going to hide it. This one is a real challenge for me. My instinct is to keep quiet and hope it stays under the radar. But if I am honest with my husband before he finds out that I broke something and forgot to make time to wash his favorite shirt before he heads off somewhere, then it does help. That's certainly better than the kids pointing it out to him. So that was our first commitment about being trustworthy. The second one is I commit to not overpromise and underdeliver. But if it looks like that's where things are headed, I'll tell you. No one likes surprises. It's better to know things are not looking good, are not going well in advance. It's better for them to know beforehand that you're not going to make the deadline or that you won't be there or it's not going to be the great quality you promised or you're not going to make the start of your kid's birthday party. You might squirm as you tell them, but at least there's the opportunity to do something about it if you give them a heads up. The third commitment, if you confront me about the gaps that I've created, I'll tell you the truth. Honesty again. In our homes, with our friends, in that staff meeting, if you bring up the gap that I've created, my failures, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to dress it up or tell you half the story. I'll try and not get defensive. I'll be honest. I won't try and blame other people. I'll tell you what really happened. Hopefully, you will understand that mistakes happen. Honesty in all our relationships with our kids, even with our kids, letting them know when we've messed up, with our boss about our mistakes, is going to create trust for the future. A lack of honesty, a lack of trust, destroys relationships, and it means teams are going to be ineffective. So these are the three commitments we can make to be trustworthy. I commit to do what I say I'll do. When I don't, I'll tell you. I commit to not overpromise and underdeliver. But if it looks like that's where things are heading, I'll tell you. If you confront me about the gaps I've created, I'll tell you the truth. It's a lot to ask, isn't it? Loving this way, forgiving being honest, trusting. Where did this idea of love originate? Where did Paul get this ideal from? Well, Paul spent time with Jesus after the resurrection. He got to know him in person. Paul knew what it was to be forgiven for persecuting those early Christians. Paul must have had a real honest conversation with Jesus. Although we don't have the details, 
Paul was trusted by Jesus to take his message to uh, around the world. But another example we have um, is Peter, who also spent time with Paul, but had spent loads of time with Jesus. One of Jesus' closest friends, um, Peter knew what it was like to fail. He knew what it was to let his mates down. He ditched the truth when it was inconvenient. Peter created some really big gaps in his relationships. But he had seen real love in action in his friend Jesus. He'd been on the receiving end of this kind of love. Peter knew what it was to be forgiven when he let Jesus down in a crisis. He experienced that honest conversation, and we have those details, um, that conversation with Jesus that rebuilt relationships. He couldn't believe it when Jesus trusted him, Peter, the failure to lead the early church. These aspects of love in Paul's letter are really aspects of God's love seen in Jesus, God's love for you and me. And it's a love that forgives, that rejoices in truth, a love that trusts. So living like this is idealistic. If you're thinking this is completely beyond you, then I'm with you. It's unrealistic. It's not achievable unless we have access to supernatural help. And that's the amazing thing. You and I can come to God for divine help, to forgive, to be honest, to trust those around us. He gives us power to love like this. So what will happen if we do our relationships will thrive if we make and keep these commitments to each other, if we create a culture of trust. Families are going to be strengthened when we remove suspicion and replace it with forgiveness and trust and honest communication. Everyone's going to have a chance to flourish. Children will thrive in an environment of trust. Friendship groups would be transformed, particularly these days, if our posts and tweets and comments don't highlight the gaps in one another's behavior, but show trust. How about our workplaces? They too would flourish when suspicion between employees and the boss and amongst co-workers is replaced by trust. Church teams too will be most effective, as well as being fun places to serve, when we commit to trusting one another. So when you next see a gap, when someone disappoints you or appears to let you down, will you choose to fill it with forgiveness and honesty and trust instead of the natural reaction of suspicion? Let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, when we read about real love, divine love, we realize how our human idea of love falls way short. We find it so hard to forgive each other when we're let down. We find it difficult to have honest conversations. Trusting one another after our failures doesn't come naturally. So we ask for your help, your Holy Spirit power, in our lives today and tomorrow to transform our hearts 
our relationships so that we can make and keep these commitments to trust and be trustworthy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.